Welcome to another episode of the Self Storage Insight Podcast. I'm Ben Shirey, and today I'm joined by Bob Copper, and we're going to discuss feasibility studies as well as self storage due diligence and the things that you need to know before purchasing a facility. Bob, if you don't mind, share a little bit of your background on how you got into self storage and kind of what made you start Self Storage 101. Sure. I uh, started in the industry back in the mid 1990s uh, as a district manager for public storage in Birmingham, Alabama and uh, ran several districts for them, you know, around the the Southeast for several years. And then in early 2002 or so, uh, started up Self Storage 101, went in business for myself. Uh, My wife wanted to get back to Birmingham where our grandkids lived. And so I said, well, I'll just go in business for myself and start up Self Storage 101 then. And so uh, I've been doing that ever since. It's grown into probably what by far what is the largest consulting firm in the industry as far as feasibility studies, market studies, acquisitions. We do stuff all over the country, all 50 states, um, have a pretty big organization. So I said, just grew out of, you know, tried a lot of different things in my career, but I got into storage and realized I was just smart enough to do that. So um, it's worked out pretty well for us. I wanted to kind of yeah shift gears here a little bit and talk about due diligence, right? So right. Uh, somebody's coming into an acquisition. Uh, what what does the due diligence process look like if you come in and work with a company on that? What are you specifically looking for, or what should they be looking for? Right, and we do a lot of due diligence uh, acquisition work, so I'm, I'm glad you asked about that. And 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 that's probably becoming even more important as people are are trying to find deals to buy. Uh, as developments certainly gotten more difficult to do, right? So people are, mm-hmm. are, are trying to find ways to do develop uh, to, to buy existing facilities. Well, so when we get involved in somebody wanting to do due diligence. We kind of have a, a three pieces of that, and, and they can pick all three pieces or one of the three. It doesn't matter to us. Um, first and foremost, almost all cases we do any kind of a, a acquisition work, we go on site, go audit the facility to make sure that people are getting what they think they're getting. Right. Um, you know. Uh, that make sure that there really are 150 units, that there really is that much square footage, that that you don't have 100 doors that need to be repaired, or they've never done an auction before, or the last time they did an auction, they just threw everybody's stuff in the dumpster, and you might get sued someday over that. So there's a lot of things we need to be looking at at the site, because that's what you're buying, right? You're buying an existing facility with all of its uh, good and bad pieces, and so we got to make sure we understand that um, of what you're getting into. Then the second piece of that is the, the financial analysis. And again, tell who, who the buyer is or, or what kind, what they're buying. It might be important to look at their financials, look at bank statements and income statements and make sure all of that lines up. Because while I will say, I think most brokers in our industry are really good and do a good job. I've looked at enough broker packages to know they're not always accurate. They're not always, right. I don't want to say they're not always true, but they're sometimes exaggerated or, there's things that don't look right. So it's important to have someone who's not trying to sell you the property to make sure that the financial part piece looks right. Okay. okay. Uh, and then the third piece that, that I think is important for people to look at, especially if they're looking at an asset that's underperforming, which again, don't we all want to buy those, right? We want to buy ones that need right. some work that to make it more valuable is to make sure you know what's going on in the market around you. Right. People call all the time and say, I've got this great deal. This is what the property's doing. And I think I can really do better with it. Well, then you find out the whole market's terrible. You can't mm-hmm. fix that. If you're buying right. a, a property that's 70% occupied, you think you can get it to 90 when everybody else in the market's only 70. 
you're probably fooling yourself. So there's a reason why it matters to say to not get such a vacuum and try to buy stuff just because it's too good to be true, because it probably is too good to be true, right? You got to make sure right. that right. you're getting what you're getting into. And so, um, you know, I think that that of all the things that people have to invest in when they buy a property, having an independent third party look at it makes sense. Now, if they want to do it themselves, that's fine if they're qualified and kind of know what they're doing, but they got to make sure, again, that the units are there, the occupancies there, the finances are there and do some due diligence about the market itself. We've had deals where people are trying to unload properties and come to find out it's because there's eight other brand new ones in the pipeline going to get built around them. So they're trying to get out of there before all that happens. Well, if you're buying the place, you need to know that too, because you're going to, that everything that's positive about this market is going to not be positive if eight more new ones get built. And so I think people have to recognize where things are and what they're doing. Look at trends. Um, you know, anybody whose primary um, exposure to self-storage has been the last couple of years, the COVID years, they're probably going to get really disappointed in the next couple of years because we're kind of right. going back to normal, right? You know, we're, we're, we're getting back to where storage, the rates go up and down seasonally. You know, they go up in the summer and back down the winter. You know, for the couple of years of COVID, it was always up. Well, right. that's not real. I mean, we're kind of, you know, the previous 40 years of storage had a cycle to it. We're kind of back to that, right? We're back to where okay. there's a more of a cycle. Now, I have people all the time wanting to try to underwrite deals with what a property was doing two years ago or a year ago. It's not going to do that the next couple of years. It's just not because the world we live in is different than it was two years ago. It's back, again, what I'd call normal. So right. people right. need to have a little bit of a, a conversation with someone about what they're looking to buy and, and is it going to perform like they think it's going to perform. If you look at, you know, we subscribe to, you know, some of the very expensive databases and, and by and large, you go to a lot of markets and in general, the last 12, 24 months, rates have trended down, occupancy have trended down. And if you're depending on everything being what they said it was two years ago, you're probably going to be in trouble because you got to make sure you understand um, what you're looking at when it comes to due diligence. Make sure what you're buying, let's face it, when people buy self-storage property, a lot more zeros involved than if they were used to flipping small houses. And so right. they got to make sure they understand what they're getting into before they, before they invest that kind of money. Are you interested in owning a self-storage facility, but you don't know where to begin? Bob Copper and his team at Self Storage 101 are the industry leaders when it comes to feasibility studies and due diligence audits. Bob has personally owned over 50 facilities nationwide and has a vast experience of knowledge when it comes to buying and auditing facilities. If you're interested in learning more, head over to selfstorage101.com. Right. And so uh, if I can ask you just a couple follow-up questions, maybe one would be, you know, how long of a period would you say somebody should try to negotiate for the due diligence to take place? Like, what is the standard for working that out within a negotiation? Yeah, pretty standard. Uh, you know, when we get most of our deals are usually 60 to 90 days of due diligence, another 30 days to close. Um, we don't necessarily need that long to do what we do. Um, the main reason we try to bake in some time is often third party party reports take longer than we want them to do. For example, if you're the bank's getting an appraisal that may take longer. Right. Or uh, you're, you're wanting to get a phase one environmental report or you, you want to get a survey. Sometimes we've bought properties and it, the longest thing it took was getting it surveyed because everybody was so backed up getting surveys. So, mm -hmm. but you know, if you can get 60 days due diligence and another 30 days to close, that's probably going to be long enough in most cases. Um, 
you know, I've seen recently where a lot of deals have been stretched out because people are struggling to get the money together. I mean, banks are, right. are a little harder to borrow money right now. So a lot of people are trying to get private money and do investments. And I've seen deals even fall out because they couldn't perform in the loan because they couldn't get all their ducks in a row. So, um, but I think a standard 30 to 60 to uh, 60 to 90 days is pretty common. Okay. And then you had mentioned too, as far as looking at, you know, the, the market around you and seeing their rates, is, is it getting harder to do that with the way that some of the REITs and things are changing their rates uh, as far as their street rates being so much lower than their in-place rates? Ha has that affected it, the due diligence phase at all to where you can value a property off of that? Well, you know, when you look at, um, you know, on online rates versus in-store rates, the online rate is the rate. I mean, let's face it. That if That's why they're online is because most people rent online in fact, uh, I've shopped enough facilities to walk in a, in some of the REITs, and the first thing the manager says is, hey, it's cheaper online. So nobody's paying those in-store rates. So you kind of have to pro forma it based on what those internet rates are. Now, right. you got to use some common sense, too. Sometimes those internet rates, it says right on there, half off for three months. Well, then that's all it's going to be. But right. if the in-store says what it is, and the, the uh, in-store rate is, uh, $90 and the online rate 75, most people are probably going to be paid 75 because that's what people are doing now. I mean, how often do people just walk in a self-storage property now, just cold turkey and say, I want to rent a unit. What's the rate, right? They start on the internet. Most of our right. businesses, right. 80, 85% of it's in the internet. So the internet rates, online rates, and there's a reason it's a marketing reason why they show an in-store rate and an online rate. Why do they do that? To get you to do it online. Mm -hmm. So, I think is important. But the other thing that's important is to look at trends. I mean, like I said, we, we invest in some databases that will show what the rates have done the last 12 to 24 months. So you okay. kind of have to look and pay attention. If the rates have been steadily declining, then you need to know that and know why. Now, in some cases, you see the seasonality, right? You see in the summer, they're higher than the winter. That's, that's normal, right? Mm -hmm. But if you've seen a steady decline, then you need to know and, make, and pay attention to that. And I think you know, if you look at most of the trade stuff going on, in general, occupancy levels are down a little bit. Rates are down a little bit. Income isn't necessarily down as much because we've all learned how to do better at revenue management, raising rates on existing tenants, and we're still all doing that. So the income right. itself hasn't dropped as much. But, you know, new people coming in are paying less probably than the people that moved in a year ago just because we've all had to be had to do that to get business. And so... It right. does make it, that's a good point. It does make it trickier, but it also means you need to pay a little more attention and not just accept where things are. Because, you know, if you just look at things in a vacuum, it's always too good to be true, right? We always think, right. man, that's just too good of a deal. Well, there's usually a reason. For sure. For sure. And, and it also uh, kind of goes to the point that if you don't really know what you're looking for, hire somebody that does. Right. Because somebody coming into this industry that hasn't already, you know, purchased facilities or done any due diligence, they're going to overlook a lot of these little things where a company like yours, where you're doing this all of the time for people, you're going to catch all those little things they're going to miss and probably save a ton of money in the long run by spending some money up front to bring in, a, bring in somebody that, that knows the industry better. Well, well they will. I, I give this example. That's a great point. That if, if any of anybody listening came to my house in Birmingham for the first time, they would see cracks and, and spider webs and things that I don't notice anymore because I'm there all the time. So there's, I don't see it. But when somebody comes in with a fresh set of eyes, they're going to notice things you would have never seen. Or someone who, again, you know, that's why when we, 
you know, we, you buy a house, what do you, you get inspected before you buy it to make sure that a professional has made sure, because I don't know how to check a roof. I mean, I, I'm not going to do that. I mean, I had LASIK surgery years ago. I didn't do that myself, right? I had a professional do my LASIK surgery because I'm not, a, you know, I don't fix my own car because I don't know how to fix cars. And so it is surprising me. That's a good point. How many people are, they're doing two things. One, they're always asking questions how to do it themselves. Okay, I get that. But if you're going to spend a couple million on a piece of property, do you really going to do the, do that? And the second thing is, well, who's the cheapest people to do this? When I bought my LASIK surgery, I didn't want the cheapest guy that did it. Right, for sure. Right. I want the best guy that did it, right? If, 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 the cheap, if, you're, if your sole purpose is, I want to find the cheapest person to do X, whether that's feasibility study, uh, whether that is a due diligence audit, whether it's everything we do in this business, if all you compare about is I want the cheapest one, you probably should find something else to do. Yeah. So, so if uh, maybe at this point we could shift a little bit and talk about the feasibility study part of that, like sure. what is the main importance as far as what, when you're looking at a feasibility study, uh, what are the, some of the main things that you're looking for? Well, when we do a feasibility study, there's really two, there's a lot of different pieces, but there's really two most critical pieces of, of determining feasibility is are the rental rates high enough and are the occupancies high enough for you to build more self-storage in that market? And both of those need to be high enough. And I can give you an example. It's not unusual to do a feasibility study in a market where everybody's 100% full and they're all charging $35 for a 10 by 10. Okay. Well, it doesn't matter that they're all full. You can't build a $35 10 by 10. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're not going to get 90 bucks in that market either because they're getting 35. You might get 50, but people, people will come to us and say, hey, I've checked all my competitors are full. Well, how much are the rates? I'm not sure. Well, that... That does matter, right? You got to know that. Right. And vice versa, you got to make sure that the occupancy levels in the market give you an indication that there's room for more storage space. I think sometimes people get too caught up in the demand calculations and how much square feet per person is in the market and all that. I can tell you, I don't think anybody knows what those numbers are supposed to be anymore. Um, it really is more about occupancies and rates because both of those are the primary drivers of it. And then you look at other things like, does the site make sense? You know, should you build climate or non-climate? You know, how much should you build? But at the at the, the very core of it is, how much are the what are they getting for the rates and what are the occupancy levels? If you don't know those two, I've had people tell me they had a feasibility study done, and whoever did it could not determine what the occupancy rates were the competitors. Then you whatever money you spent on that feasibility study was a waste of money. You have to know that, right. whether it's you phone calls, you whatever you do, you got to determine that because. If I tell you to build and it turns out everybody was a 60% full, you're going to be in trouble because you can't, right. you know, you got to know that. So yeah, from a feasibility standpoint, those are the two main ones. And it's usually the two that people they'll say, well, I can't build because there's, there's already nine square feet per person in the market. So mm-hmm. if everybody's full and the rates are crazy high, then build. Right. I mean, that, you know, it doesn't matter. Those sometimes people get caught up in some things that really aren't critical that, Nobody that's been doing this a long time pays attention to that stuff. Looking for a hassle-free solution to help with your day-to-day management at your self-storage facility? Copper Storage Management offers fully remote third-party management for over 200 facilities nationwide. With more than 75 years of experience, the Copper Storage Management team will handle your facility's operations, marketing, collections, auctions, bookkeeping, and more while growing revenue and increasing your asset value. 
connect with copper today. Go to copperstoragemanagement.com. For sure. And then like for a feasibility study, would you go on site for that as well? Or I know for due diligence, you mentioned that you normally go on site. Feasibility. Yeah, due diligence. Yeah, that's a good question. Due diligence, we we always do if if the people are doing the on-site piece of it. And, and everybody does. Not everybody does the other pieces, but right. usually somebody at least wants somebody to go into the site and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. On, an, on feasibility studies now, very now, now, very rarely do we go on-site. It's because we do 50 to 60 every month. We've done thousands of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we subscribe to expensive databases, have probably more data in our you know, of, of stuff going on in the country than most people because of that. So we found it just isn't necessary. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So then with all these feasibility studies that you're doing and all the due diligence stuff, what are some of the trends that you kind of see uh, with storage, where it's heading, you know, building versus acquiring or, you know, adding in things like boat storage, RV storage, that sort of thing onto properties? Sure. Good question. Well, I would say the number one trend I've seen of late is that it, that, it's getting more difficult to develop for a lot of reasons, right? Rates have come down a little bit. Um, building materials are still expensive and it's very expensive to borrow money right now. That's, right. that's right. becoming more of an issue. Uh, I see more and more people looking at buying properties now because in that case, at least you're, when you build an, when you're building a new property, you have to borrow money against you where if you buy self-existing when you're borrowing money against that property, right? So it's a different dynamic. And so it's a little easier to get money maybe for an existing facility than to buy new. So I'm seeing that trend. Um, definitely seeing more of a trend of people warming up to the idea of having facilities with no on-site managers. Um, I okay. think that 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 trend was always here. Um, I mean, since storage started, there've been facilities with no manager on site, but it really, um, took off during COVID, right? Because it got to where during COVID, you couldn't have, a lot of people couldn't have anybody there. Um, you couldn't let me in the office. So it made us, for those of us who were already doing on, on offsite managers, it didn't affect us at all. I mean, it, we didn't see any difference because we've not had managers for a long time. But for folks who had managers on site, they had to stumble through how to address that, right? Because all of a sudden people couldn't come in the office. So I think that's a big trend. And I think more people recognizing you know, that is a, a viable, positive trend because the consumers are accepting the fact nobody's there. Let's face it, most of us don't like interacting with people in person anyway, right? right, um, right. Uh, the technology, the phones, the QR codes, all the stuff we're doing now allows that to happen. And so I think that is a big trend. And when you see the biggest operators that do, we do extra space, public, getting heavily invested in that version of business, the unmanned, remotely managed business, they're smarter than us, right? And if they see a viability in that business, then it's silly for us to think otherwise. We're not going to outsmart them. And so I, I sure. think that I've definitely seen a lot more interest in boat and RV. Uh, a lot of people, um, there were more boats and RVs sold in the two years of COVID than ever in the history of boats and RVs. And so now they got to have somewhere to put them. Right. And so I've seen a lot more of that. Um, the problem with boat and RV is, uh, you need more land typically than you would otherwise for storage. So you got to find more and a lot less expensive land because, you know, the, the boat and RV just doesn't have the same per square foot rates. Sure, um, sure. But it certainly is a viable business. There's a lot of people that just do that. Um, there's some big companies out there buying up a lot of boat and RV places and making a, a big national play, which is good for them. And so I've seen more of that. 
Um, in fact, we've, we've got a, a place on a lake in Alabama, and I've seen more boat storage places go up in the last year than were there already. Uh, they've more than doubled because of that trend. So that's a big trend. I, I think it's a good trend. Um, but it's a little different from storage from the fact of, you know, I've, I've seen people say, well, how much, how much boat and RV can I put on half an acre? I wouldn't even bother. There's right. just not, you don't get enough on there to make the, so you gotta have more land and it needs to be a lot less expensive than you would normally pay for storage. What, what do you see trending as far as like mobile units or pods? Is that something that you see a lot of or not a whole lot? Don't see a lot of it. In fact, uh, it's funny, you know, I remember there were several years there where we would go to a trade show like Vegas, ISS, SSA, and it'd be a lot of businesses there selling those boxes. Okay. I hardly see those ever anymore. Really? Um, now we see portable storage buildings, you know, like mass units or box wells. We see those, but as far as the boxes that people are, they're made to sit on a tractor trailer and drop off and do all that. We don't even see that much anymore because I think it became quickly evident uh, that it really wasn't much of a competitor to traditional storage. And okay. it is something different business so when you speak of uh the remote management uh remote management options what is a good fit for a business like what's a ideal you know what's an ideal business look like for using remote management well you know honestly it's evolved to where we believe that any size and any configuration works with it um you know i do believe that sometimes a, a boat and rv only uh is a more of a challenge stores if they don't have the units numbered and well delineated for example right. you go to a lot of boat and rv facilities and the manager just knows where everybody's parked in their head mm -hmm. well, that's no way to run a business but a lot of them run that way but if it's a boat and rv place even that every space is numbered and that and you know exactly where to park remote management kind of works in all those scenarios if you think about you know i had somebody question me one time at one of the shows we were at um and said i don't understand how you could do remote management nobody on site in a multi-story building I mean, how would you, you know, how do people find their units and what do they do? And I asked this person, well, how did you find your hotel room in this hotel? Nobody walked you to your room. There are signs everywhere that said units 100 through one are that way. Right. No different. Right. So, you know, the idea of having somebody there all the time when so much stuff is automated now, collections are automated, payments are automated. To have someone sit there all day on the off chance somebody might pull in the parking lot and want to rent a unit. It just doesn't make sense when most people don't do that anymore either. And so right. I don't know that there is, I mean, forever unmanned facilities worked best in rural small facilities just because they weren't big enough for managers. Mm -hmm. And so it's evolved to where almost any size, we manage facilities from 20,000 to 120,000 unmanned because it really trying to figure out why they need to be there doesn't make sense. There's no rhyme or reason because you know, managers don't go out anymore and pass out flowers at apartment complexes, right? And right. why would they? No reason to. Um, like I said, most of the collections now is automated through texting and calls. I mean, does everybody does that. You do auctions online. Um, right. So to have somebody there all the time, I mean, now, now when we say remote management, obviously some physical presence is there. Somebody goes by once a week, twice a week, picks up the trash and does things. But have mm -hmm. somebody sitting there in an office all day, I don't know what they do. I, I've never had anybody right. explain to me. I've right. visited literally thousands of self-search properties over the years. And most of them, I don't understand what they're doing there all day. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so uh, I, I don't know that there's an application where it won't work, honestly. Right. And and right. to your point, too, I mean, most people, if they're looking for a unit anymore, they're looking online. You know, I'm not going to drive around to five different facilities and see if they have availability. I already okay. know because I looked online. So if, of course, if, you know, if you don't see that the industry is trending that way, then you're going to miss out anyway, I feel like. so. I think so, too. I think the legacy of, of feel like you have to have a couple of people there. Again, if you think you need somebody there, maybe it's a really big facility in a challenging neighborhood. Maybe you got somebody there just to keep it clean and check on the place. But I don't think having somebody sit there behind a counter all day, again, I don't know what they're doing. There's 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 not enough activity going on. The busiest self-storage property in the world doesn't have enough activity going on to have somebody sitting there to manage that activity. It can all be done remotely. And again, we all had to learn during COVID, let's face it. Let's face it, if you didn't learn how to use QR codes during COVID, you would have starved, right? Because every restaurant, you had to use a QR code because they didn't pass right. out any paper. Um, we've got to use, you know, websites and stuff. I, I used to think this was partly generational. I used to think if you weren't doing all those things, you couldn't do business with my kids. Mm-hmm. Then I realized you couldn't do business with my parents either because my parents do everything on their phones. They right. buy and sell stuff on eBay. They get their hotels on Travelocity. Um, they don't do stuff the old fashioned way either. Cause you really can't do it anyway anymore. So right, I think right. now I do think that when you do it that way, the remotely managed facility, I think you do have to have some people ask us all the time. Well, how expensive is it to do that? So it's not at all. You just have to buy a few more signs to help people understand what to do when they're there. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it, we build the same facility. I mean, I'm building a brand new one in Birmingham right now. It's going to open hopefully in mid December. The only difference between that facility and an old facility is I didn't put an office in it. Although it's identical, same cameras, same keypad system, same everything, except I have a few extra signs about what to do when you get there. Otherwise it's really no different. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. I think the the whole landscape is going to continue to change more technology based. I mean, like if you go to these shows, right. Almost everybody there's a tech vendor, right? There's technologies oh, flooding into the industry and it's going to continue to get easier and easier to do things remotely and online. And, and that's where the shift is going to continue to move towards. Well, there's no doubt. Even companies like U-Haul, you mean, people ask me a lot about, well, can you rent trucks at an unmanned facility? Turns out you can't. Even U-Haul has a 24-7 program where people can rent trucks using their phone. They don't need anybody sitting there all day to rent trucks either. So, yeah you're naive to think we aren't moving in that direction. It's just a matter of when do you move in that direction? What, uh, if I could ask you maybe one more question then would be if, if somebody was new looking to get into storage, what would be some advice you would give them on things to look for? Maybe I would encourage them to, you know, go to trade shows. I would encourage them to look at trade magazines, go to like the ISS online and look at articles. Um, there are different groups out there like Michael Wagner and, 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 uh, Scott Myers who do like, coaching and mentoring programs and it probably would hurt to invest in some of those things and learn before you actually go out and start trying to find a self-storage property, figure out what to do with it. If you were to find one, mm-hmm. make sure you've already got some financial, you know, acumen lined up because if you do find a good deal, you don't want to spend the next six months trying to finance it. You got to kind of know what you're already know what you can afford, learn how to mm-hmm. underwrite deals. Um, Cause any of us who buy a lot of properties like us, we look at a lot of properties we don't buy because we know the underwriting. We know what makes sense and what doesn't. So, but someone first getting into it, I will say that they're always probably going to be better off trying to find an existing facility to buy than build a new one. Because okay. the brain damage of building a new one, the time it takes, 
the money it takes and working through all that it can be discouraging, right? It can, it can wear you down. If you buy an existing facility that already has existing cash flow, even if it's a little bitty property that you manage yourself, you'll learn more and it won't be such an expensive education. Awesome. Well, hey, Bob, I thank you for your time and uh, for all your insight. It was a a lot of fun talking to you. I'd love to pick your brain again at some point. Uh, I have years of experience over me, obviously, and so I enjoyed having you on the uh, podcast today. Anytime. If you you see Brad or talk about it, tell him I said, oh, you're probably talking before I do. This podcast episode was brought to you by CC Storage. CC Storage is a property management software that helps you pass the fees of credit card processing onto your customers so you don't pay credit card processing fees ever again. If you enjoyed the podcast, there's a link below where you can fill out a form and be interviewed on the podcast with myself. If that interests you, please click the link below and we'll be in touch. We hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Don't forget to check back next week for another interview with another self-storage property owner.